Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knack, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing, sir? Yeah, I'm doing well. Last night I went out to look at some of the stars and planets, and then a whole bunch of clouds came in. But I got to see Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and some lots of stars, so that was fun. Happy for you, and I'm really glad that you like looked at the silver lining of that whole thing. I would have been complaining up a storm if I went out to see some stars, and 10 minutes later some clouds rushed in, so... That just speaks to the measure of character that you got, Derek. You really are a good dude, and I just want to let you know you're a good dude. Derek out here not complaining about stuff. He's just like, I'm just glad I got to see some stars. I can't do your voice, but you know, that was the (laughs) well. I mean, they're they're gonna still be there, right? I can always go back again. Always looking at the positive side of things. I admire that greatly, dude. All right, before we get into the meat of what we want to discuss today. Just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in the book of 3rd Nephi today, chapters 8 through 11. Derek, is there any historical, literary, or theological context you want to give these verses before we dive into the content? Yeah, I think the narrative context here is the climax of the Book of Mormon, and it comes right after a low period of destruction and devastation, which maximizes the contrast with this beautiful and peaceful appearance of the post-resurrection Jesus. And I think this ends up being the highest point of all the Book of Mormon and something that really should stand out as a focal point and a touchstone for the for even for our missionary work. Like this mm-hmm. is a great chapter, at least third Nephi chapter eleven, right. to talk about the unveiling or even uncloseting of Jesus to the Nephites who had been obscured for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The title page of the Book of Mormon actually calls this the crowning event of the Book of Mormon. So that just speaks to how important what it is we are about to talk about is, particularly in the context of the events leading up to it. So I'm going to start in chapter 8, verse 4. Like this is where all the destruction is happening, tempests, earthquakes, whirlwinds, all kinds of... uh, all kinds of natural disasters are happening or unnatural disasters. I don't know what you want to call them. But uh, this is what I've noticed. Verse 8 and verse 14. The city of Zarahemla took fire. The city of Moroni did sink. Verse 14. Many great and notable cities were sunk and many were burned and many were shaken till the buildings thereof had fallen to the earth and the inhabitants thereof were slain and the places were left desolate. Now the city of Zarahemla is basically the hub of the Nephite civilization. This is like the big city. And then it goes on to say that many great and other notable cities were sunk and destroyed. Now, I just found it interesting that the Book of Mormon made sure to let us know that the big cities, the most important cities, the cultural and population hubs of the Nephite civilization were brought down. Do you think there is any significance to this editorial note that many other great notable cities were sunk in the context of what is happening here. Well, we get the details later that it was based on their wickedness. Right. That some of the less wicked ones survive, and they weren't perfectly righteous because he calls the survivors to repentance. Right. 
but the most wicked ones are the ones that seem to be destroyed. So that's all I see. I couldn't help but read a little bit of American exceptionalism into this. I feel like people and the Nephites themselves, they've actually fallen on this before. They talked about the greatness of their cities and the greatness of their strength and their people and tried to fall on that. And uh, Samuel actually let people know, Nephi let people know, your cities are going to be destroyed if y'all don't repent. This was their retort. They were like, nothing's going to happen to us. Our cities are great. Our people are great. We're strong. Nothing bad is going to happen to us. How dare you revile us? And in those moments, they were calling for, you know, the killing, the stoning, the imprisonment of, of the prophets. And now we see, not many years later, that the fulfillment of those prophecies are taking place. We see the unrepentant being destroyed, and we see their cities, their greatest cities, uh, being destroyed. So I just view this as a caution to people like us, particularly Americans. We definitely fall into this trap of viewing ourselves as strong, viewing ourselves as exceptional. However, in the space of not much time, their cities were brought down by God himself, by Christ himself. And I feel like that is a clear warning to us to repent and not think that we're exempt from the judgments of God or exempt from literally losing everything. So that was one thing. Obviously, I stopped at the lamentations of the people of Nephi in verses 24 and 25, but I needed to read that in the context of what you pointed out, Derek, that we see in chapter 9, where the voice of Christ actually comes to the people and proclaims that he has destroyed these cities and he has destroyed the people. And this is the common ending to these verses, that the blood of the prophets and the saints shall not come any more unto me. So basically throughout the whole of chapter 9, Jesus Christ is saying that I destroyed these cities for their wickedness and abominations because you guys basically killed the saints, you killed my people, you killed the prophets, and their voices demand justice. So the Lord is stating throughout chapter 9 that he has committed these acts of violence in the name of justice. Now I just wanted to see what your thought about this was. Like, who is this Jesus Christ that we're interacting with in these moments? This Christ that is so full of justice that he basically wipes out all these people's cities and wipes out a bunch of these people. Who is this Christ that we worship in this moment? Wow, there's a lot to unpack here. And I think there's sort of two different, well, there's only, well, let's see, let me just say it this way. People are gonna read this from their own social and theological location people who have been victimized and cry out for justice are going to see something here. People who come from a background of theological nonviolence as a core commitment, like I do, are going to see something else here. Do you want to speak from that then? Well, no, I, so what I want to say is to really for everyone of every perspective to just sit with the text as it is, because a lot of us are going to want to rationalize it at least I, my first tendency is to say, hey, look, well, Jesus is loving and peaceful, and so we have to so we have to wrestle with this text and kind of explain it away. And But I think the best thing to do is, like Job's friends before they got dumb, is just sit there silently with the situation and let it work on us. And I, let me just talk a little bit about violence and destruction in the Bible. And a lot of us want to see God as sweet and loving. And there is that uh, part of him, especially in the Hebrew Bible, where you, where you have declarations that God is slow to anger and loving and wants people to repent. But then you've also got 
and not just in the Hebrew Bible, but also in the New Testament. This idea of a just God that is a destroyer, a destroyer of empires, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, you get a lot of violence. Probably the most violent book in the New Testament is, of course, Revelation. And that's where you get the most worship of Christ. Mm. We have very little instruction or documentation of worship in the New Testament. It's talked about, but we have so many hymns to Christ and the Lamb in Revelation. And that's also where we see Jesus at his most violent. And so this is something that Christians are going to have to wrestle with. We just have to kind of sit with this. Some of the, the most important texts in the Bible on Jesus uh, on God and violence and God's act of destruction are in Second Peter chapter 2 and in the book of Jude. You also have the statement in Luke chapter 17 where Jesus says, yeah, all this destruction is to lead you to repent and to learn from that. And so there's, uh, there's, there's elements of this. And I love this connecting it with what we talked about last time about the slipperiness Mm-hmm. that your wealth and privilege will slip away to those who are marginalized. And there's an element of this in Job chapter 20, where Zophar speaks about the wicked aren't going to be exempt, that they're going to be destroyed, and their children will have to make amends to the poor and all sorts of cool things like that. And so let's bring it back to the text right here. If you notice this refrain that you already mentioned that says that they were destroyed in order to hide their wickedness and abominations, that the blood of the prophets and saints shall not come up any more unto me against them. So there's a sense in which the text here, and we may or may not agree with this and we have to wrestle with it, but the text here says that God in some sense destroyed them not just as an act of retribution, but an act of mercy on them because he's going to kill them before they got worse. He's going to kill them before they sinned even more and got God more angry at them. And and there would be more wickedness that the prophets would testify against them. And mm-hmm. so I think there's just a lot of complexity here. And to tie this all up, let me just go to one of the most important thinkers in the New Testament. And this is Paul. I'm going to read something he says. Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, what are you laughing at? I'm just genuinely impressed right now with where you're going and how much you are able to just string together chapter, scholar, That's because I didn't. That's person. because I didn't prepare, so I'm just going to talk about what I know. Yeah, and you let me know before the show started. I'm probably not going to have a lot to say, but here we are, and Derek is just going off. But I'm I genuinely I impressed be, by it. I want to at least be thorough because this is a really complex topic, and a lot. there's this tendency in the church to have like a one-liner that just kind of ties it all together in a neat bow. So in chapter 9 of Romans, he talks about this idea of justice and judgment and basically says that, yeah, God is in charge. Like a potter over clay, God can destroy who he wants. God can save who he wants. And we shouldn't complain about that. And and it says, you know, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. And God prepared some people for salvation and others were prepared notice the passive voice for destruction it doesn't say who prepared them but then when you get into Romans chapter 11 and I'm going to read from the English standard version just because it's a little bit clearer here 
And this is the whole thing about Jews and Gentiles, that the Jews were broken off of the olive tree so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. So there's a sense in which the Gentiles benefited from bad things that have happened to the people of Israel. And here's what, I'm going to start here, and when it says they, it means the Jews, and when it says you, it means the Gentiles. So in, starting in Romans 11, verse 28, it says, As regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And I just want to uplift this last statement, that God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And that's where Paul gets through this whole kaleidoscope of disobedience and, and judgment and sort of an amnesty and then mercy. And that's kind of the lesson we could learn from here is, yes, God was, and in the person of Jesus Christ, destroyed people for dis being disobedient. But in the larger context of the salvation narrative, it ends up being merciful, perhaps even locally to them. But God puts people in a state of disobedience to make room for eventually everyone to come together. God puts state in the people of disobedience. Maybe I should have said, lets them be in a state of obedience and puts them in a, in a, a punishment. Thank you for clarifying that. I figured that's what you meant, but I'm just like, I need yeah. to make sure I hear this correctly. Okay. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for letting us uh, sit in that tension between the justice as well as the mercy of Jesus Christ. I'm not somebody that always views, or I don't generally view violence as something evil. I view it as a very neutral thing. Like a means, it can be a means to evil, it could be a means to good. We'll get to this conversation later once we get to chapter 11. But uh, there are even moments, particularly when I got to chapter 11, where I was able to empathize with Jesus as he pronounced woes on his people, as he stated what he did and why he did it, pertaining to the violence that he's inflicted upon the Nephites. But, you know, we can get to that conversation a little bit later. Uh, anything else? Uh, with regard to what we have going on in here in chapter 9, because I do have one more question about chapter 9 I want to ask you. Yeah, so what's your question? So something that uh, rang out to me, and you've already called attention to this, about those who are spared, the people who are not perfect, definitely not all the way righteous, but they were more righteous than those who were slain. Verse 13, he says, O ye that are spared, because ye were more righteous than they, Will ye not return unto me and repent of your sins and be converted that I may heal you? Like, what is he actually offering there? What is Jesus communicating when he offers to heal people? What, is, what does the word heal mean in this particular context? Because perhaps these people are physically injured, but I feel like he means something else here and perhaps something deeper than what we are inclined to hear. What is he offering here, do you think? Well, I'd like to connect it with the next verse which may have a partial answer verse 14 says yea verily i say unto you if you will come unto me ye shall have eternal life behold mine arm of mercy is extended towards you and whosoever will come 
him will I receive, and blessed are those who come unto me. So it looks like healing ends up being eternal life. All right. And eternal life isn't just, oh, you pop up out of the grave. It's a place of wholeness and completeness and a society that is where everyone is included and you have just and right relationships among people. And that's really the healing of the individual and the community that's promised here to those who repent of their sins. And I love that that relative pronoun, whosoever. So even among those who are very wicked and perhaps even among those who were destroyed, that they were cut off temporarily in this life, but that's not the end. There's uh, this idea that whosoever will come and that everyone has a chance of repentance somehow, sometime, maybe this life or the next. But I think that's exactly what we need is healing, both as individuals and societies. A lot of people really want to individual, and this I think is an American cultural problem, that we as Americans are all about bootstraps and Ugh. the individual success and whatever. Triggered. But there's so much in both the Bible and the Book of Mormon about communal rising and falling and communal sin and communal righteousness because it's the way you set up your your culture and your government and your and your society that as a whole you're either doing something right or not and that's exactly why these uh, entire groups were destroyed according to the narrative here in chapters 8 and 9 mhm mhm I have nothing else for uh, chapter 9 then. Do you have anything else? Because I'm not going to have anything to say until we get to chapter 11. I just wanted to bring out something in chapter 10 where Jesus names himself as saying, How oft have I gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings and have nourished you? And so we here we have feminine imagery for Christ, which should really problematize some of our assumptions about Christ. Mm. If you look at the LDS approach to Jesus, he's not very manly, at least according to the American definition of a man, like what a man should do. A man should have trucks and guns and beer and and be all over women and be angry and not show any other emotion but anger. And here we've got this domestic side to Jesus that really violates and transgresses our cultural norms about manhood. And so I think that's important to name, both from a queer aspect and from a feminist aspect, that Jesus isn't what a lot of people think a man should be. Hmm. I went on some farmer's websites to see what that actually meant, because I wanted to understand this Mm -hmm. imagery a little bit better. And apparently... As a hen gathers chickens under her wings, she actually has a special cluck that she uses to let them know it's time to eat, a special cluck she uses when she lets them know that there's imminent danger and to come under her wings. And I, and then when all the chickens are under those wings, the hen will literally suffer death before letting anything come to those chickens. So when I like hear Jesus likening himself to a hen gathering chickens, I hear somebody that loves his children so deeply that he is willing to die for them. In fact, by this point, he's already done that. He's already mm-hmm. done just that and has declared that he has done just that. Four times in this chapter, he uses this imagery of a hen gathering chickens under her wings. And I just really like both the non-masculine implication of that, but also the 
also the savior aspect of that. This is embodying who Jesus Christ is as a person, somebody who is going to sooner die than let anything bad happen to his children, which speaks to how powerfully and how significant it was that one, he wiped out all these cities and all these people, but also reinforces the power of the atonement and what he's willing to do for his children in order for them to return to our father in heaven. Yeah, and I just wanted to add, going back to the whole violence piece, after this destruction and devastation, the people needed to process it in some way. And that's the context in which they framed this narrative of Jesus coming and explaining this to them. Mm. And I think being able to sit and process devastation in whatever way you do is something that resonates with even the Book of Lamentations. And part of my problem with the Book of Lamentations is the theology in it. And it says, basically, the people of Israel were, were bad, so God punished them by destroying Jerusalem and by destroying the temple through the agency of the Babylonians. I'm like, is that really what you think? God is just going to hurt you because you were bad and, and that's the sense that you make of it? But that's actually what helped the people of, of Israel survive when they were in Babylon. They had a narrative that God was in control. And yes, that meant that God destroyed their temple and city, but it held them together as a people long enough to have their identity intact when they left Babylon. So it had survival value for them as a people. And I think that's why it goes back to the question around how do texts function? And this had some function for the people. It made the sense of the destruction of their their loved ones that they lost. It made sense of the chance that they got. And they ended up characterizing Jesus as a violent figure, but that's what they did. And mm. so we just have to sit with that. Yeah. Okay. Anything else in chapter 10 before we move on to the crowning event in the Book of Mormon present in chapter 11? No, that's all I have for chapter 10. All right. Also, I don't have anything to say until we get to 39. So <laughs> is there anything you want to say before we talk about the doctrine of Christ? Well, I think this is a really great example of a coming out narrative where Jesus had been hidden from the view of the Nephites for so long and then comes and reveals his truest identity, that is of the risen Lord. And not only the risen Lord, but one who is accessible and one who is vulnerable. He shows them their, his side. Mm -hmm. He allows them to, to touch him. And it's just so beautiful that he comes here in a way that is so memorable. It starts out with a small voice. People gather at the temple trying to make sense of things. And then Jesus bursts through all of their confusion with the answer. And the answer isn't some trite little platitude. The answer is embodied in the person of Jesus himself, right? And it's, it's amazing here just to see how when they saw him, they didn't even speak. They just were so amazed. And then hear his words. Behold, this is verse 10 of chapter 11. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And behold, I am the light and the life of the world, and I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me, and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. A lot of these things reson resonate with me. 
as a queer person. He, uh, he names himself. He says, I am Jesus Christ. He names his identity. He names his name. He mentions that he's to the promises of the prophets. Queer people have to lean on the promises of what's going to happen to us and all of the great treasures that we will inherit. Also, I am the light and the life of the world. Queer people know a world of destruction and devastation, both uh, from the closet and from what people do to us, hate crimes, but we are still called to be light and life in the midst of that. And then there's the bitter cup that we have to drink out of. And you know, I think queer narratives are going to change over the generations. Because in my generation, a lot of our identity comes out of the closet and the coming out narrative and the wrestle against homophobia. In future generations, that's not going to be the narrative. Their identity is going to be based on relative acceptance from the very beginning. They may not even have to come out, right? And that's why I think Jesus really speaks to everyone here. Thank you for saying that. I felt like there was something there in these verses where Jesus introduces himself, a significance in these words, especially calling himself the light and the life of the world after they just experienced these three days of darkness and so much sorrow. And then he just kind of comes out of nowhere with all, you know, all this light and life talk and just such a contrast of uh, light, of peace, and of eventual joy that we're going to see over the course of these next 16 chapters. But uh, anyway, what I wanted to talk about after this uh, experience of worship is what Jesus Christ begins to teach them and what he begins to tell them. So there's a couple of key teachings that I wanted to focus on. One, that there should be no disputations among the people concerning the points of his doctrine and uh, also what his doctrine is, which is which is what he like bookends his ministry to the Nephites with. He starts with his doctrine and he's going to end with his doctrine in chapter 27, which we'll talk about when we get there as well. And he's also going to go into some more detail about what that is. But what I wanted to talk about here in particular were a couple of these last verses, 39 and 40. This is the doctrine of Christ. Verily, I verily, I say unto you that this is my doctrine and whoso buildeth upon this buildeth upon my rock and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. And whoso shall declare more or less than this and establish it for my doctrine, the same cometh of evil and is not built upon my rock, but he buildeth upon a sandy foundation and the gates of hell stand open to receive such when the floods come and the winds beat upon them. Again, that's chapter 11, verse 39 through 40. Now, one of my favorite conversation starters as a missionary was to ask people why they thought there were so many churches in the world today. And what surprised me initially was that many people tried to make this a non-issue. They'd always say something along the lines of, you know, it doesn't matter. There's just one God. There's one Christ. We all worship him. Most of the people in, the South, in South Africa where I served, they were, they were Christian. But where things got interesting is when we asked them what the difference between the different religions were. And inevitably, the, all, the answer would almost always come to the fact that we believed different things about what Jesus taught and what he requires. Now, while some could argue and talk about that the coexistence among Christians is mostly peaceable, we have to acknowledge that these differences in doctrinal understanding are not only significant enough to merit whole new religions and theologies, but they're also different enough 
to affect the existence of entire populations of people. We know they did this for the black community, and currently we see that most obviously done with the LGBTQ community. Now, before I say any more about that, I want to make it clear how I hear these verses, and I believe that Christ is commanding us not to add or take any more requirements for salvation, for worship, or for ministry. I don't hear him saying he's not going to teach more, that we shouldn't teach more. I hear him saying we shouldn't add or take away requirements to his doctrine. Now, a commitment to believe, the, the, the only thing Christ has required for baptism is faith unto repentance. And he's going to reinforce that all throughout his teachings, particularly in chapter 27, when he talks about what his gospel is and what his doctrine is. A commitment to believe on him and live accordingly, that we may become more like him and come closer to him is what he wants. Most everything else we're quote unquote told to do, I believe, could help us to that end, but they're not requirements. And this is where Christ's instruction speaks the most to me. He's saying not to add requirements. Before on the show, Derek, you've talked about how, um, you know, the scriptures, the prophets, the church, these are not ends in and of in ends unto themselves. These are all tools to the end of Christ. Christ is the ultimate end. Christ is our goal. Salvation is our goal. And the church, the scriptures, and the prophets, they are ultimately just tools to get us there. So we need to be very careful when it comes to how we treat each one of these things in our pursuit of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that this doesn't mean that we shouldn't teach anything else or that continuing continuing revelation can't be a thing. Christ is going to teach many more things over the course of the next few chapters. He's going to give us the Sermon Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be talking about next week. He's going to institute the sacrament before bookending his ministry among the Nephites uh, with what we're discussing right now, what the gospel is. But what I believe Christ means is to not teach something else or to teach something new and then call it the doctrine of Christ. Jesus himself, actually, in some rather strong terms, condemned this very thing in the New Testament. And one more notable thing about this is it's the only, one of the few times, rather, that we see Jesus Christ angry, which is significant considering all the mess we've seen Jesus do throughout his life, including an unjust trial and execution. I also want to point out that the theme of Matthew 23, where we're about to read, is also similar to themes where we see Jesus Christ being angry, namely the the healing somebody on the Sabbath and also uh, driving out the money changers of the temple. He is mostly mad at people misunderstanding his doctrine or using the words of his father or using the house of his father to push their own agendas particularly agendas that do not meet the end of the first and second great commandments of Christ. So let's go ahead and read these verses in Matthew 23. I'm starting in verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, exclamation mark, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, exclamation mark, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, exclamation mark, for ye pay a tithe of mint and 
Annas, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides would strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Do we see how serious this is? Again, let me remind you guys that Jesus doesn't get mad like this ever except in the context of people misunderstanding his words or just totally taking them out of context. And everything else, you can be dumb, you can be ungrateful, you can be greedy, you can be late, you can whine, lie, shift your whole loyalties, have them killed, and Jesus doesn't erupt like this. There are a lot of exclamation marks after Jesus' words in Matthew 23. You don't see this many exclamation marks anywhere else. Why was Jesus so upset? Again, it's because people were turning his law, which centers on the commandments to love God and love one another, they were turning that into a tool to, to deny people's God's law. This is the whole point to me, and this is why adding or taking away from the doctrine of Christ is so dangerous. We put people in very precarious situations in the name of Christ when Christ himself would not do that. I'm on social media a lot these days, and one of my biggest pet peeves in conversation, and I'm sure a lot of listeners who are active on social media can relate to this too, is when someone asks me a question, I answer it clearly, concisely, and articulately, and they hear the opposite of what I just said, and deliberately misinterpret it and start attacking a straw man of what I said. So I just think to myself, how frustrated must Jesus be when he sees us doing that with his most important commandment to love others, how must he be feeling right now that we are taking his commandments to love others and we are using his law to dispossess and dehumanize other people? I actually envision him hearing Christians talk about how much God hates gay people and then flipping through a copy of the Bible like, where man, where cuh? Where the heck did you hear me say that? Where did I say be celibate? Where did I command gay people? to condemn themselves to a life devoid of romantic, long-term, and emotionally and physically intimate love that all people understand, not only as their birthright, but as just about one of the greatest parts of being human. Where did I command gay people to be alone, to live alone, to not hold anyone's hand, to not snuggle on the couch with anyone, to not have someone to talk to, enrich, and otherwise share and synergize with over the experiences of life? Where did I command them to not have or raise children or not to get married? Where did I command them to live their whole lives without knowing that joy, that sharing, that fulfillment? When did I command my gay children to resist the terrible temptation of love which I myself ordained as the greatest? I'm upset about this to the point where I actually almost understand why Jesus brought all these calamities upon his people. I almost understand why he wiped them out. That's somewhat validated by the fact that one of the first things Jesus said to these folks more than once what his doctrine was, that there should be no more disputations and that we should not add or take away anything. This is where we really end up messing ourselves up, is when we take God's law, which is love God and love others above all else, and we use that to hurt people. I feel like that's a big part of why Jesus acted in the way he did and why he's leading with this, so that there may not be any more confusion about this and that the people may not err again. Wow, you said a lot there. I did. Yeah, thank you so much for that. It reminds me of two things here. Like you said, the doctrine of Christ centers around faith, repentance, and baptism. That is the core proclamation of the gospel. This idea that heterosexual marriage is required for salvation is a clear addition yep. to, to what's going on here. 
the center of the doctrine of Christ. And even, and here's one of the ironies is, a lot of people, I've heard missionaries say this a lot, will you follow the example of Jesus Christ to be baptized? We never say, will you follow the example of Jesus Christ to be in a heterosexual marriage? Because in our scriptures, we have no narrative of him being married. Correct. Now, I can't prove that he was or wasn't married. That's an argument somewhat from silence. But, but where? But what I can say is we don't have a tradition or a public narrative that he was married and that it is an example for us to follow. And especially in a heterosexual marriage. And it goes back to it is not good for the human to be alone, as, as Genesis 2 says. So that's that's where I get at this idea of what the gospel is. There's room for everyone, and trying to add this heterosexual requirement is is completely artificial and arbitrary, and it leaves out people. Just like you said when you quoted verse 13 in Matthew 23, ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, against mm-hmm. people. And there are people in this church that are trying to shut up the kingdom of heaven against my people. Yep. And in the end... They're the ones that are actually left out because they're the ones that don't understand the gospel. Ye go not yourselves in. We who are queer, we understand the gospel so much better because we're part of the marginalized. Mm-hmm. We are where Jesus was. Yep. Jesus is where we are. Mm-hmm. We understand these things essentially natively. Mm-hmm. And straight people have to learn from us. Mm-hmm. what it is to be patient, what it is to be kind, what it is to have hope, mm-hmm. what it is to have faith and trust in God mm-hmm. despite appearances. Mm-hmm. And that also reminds me of, um, I hope I have these details right because I, like I said, I didn't prepare as uh, for this today. There's an article from 1960 by Valerie Saving, S-A-I-V-I-N-G. And I can't recall the title of it. But one of the main points she, and this was from 1960, very early in the theologies of women uh, recently, right? And she had a very interesting point that sin might look different for women than it does for men. Because men are socialized to be greedy and selfish. Men are socialized to be ambitious and competitive and prideful. And women are socialized, at least in our culture, to defer to the needs of others, to serve husbands and children over against their own needs. And so her point was, well, when, when male theologians talk about selfishness and pride being sins, they may be talking about what's more sinful for men. And perhaps for women, what the sin is, is uh, harming yourself and not being selfish enough. And so a lot of these things require a sense of balance. And I'm wondering if, well, when it says that heterosexual marriage is a requirement for whatever, maybe it's a requirement for straight people, right? Maybe (laughs) that's what straight people need Mm -hmm. to learn the things that queer people know natively. Perhaps. Right? Maybe straight people need uh, to, and I'm not saying all straight people, because what about the single straight people? We don't want people to be left out. 
I think the the plan of salvation is all about the one, and it's about what you need to progress in this life and the next. And that's not going to be the same for everyone. So that's that's where we get into this doctrine of Christ. What's common to all of them, though, is this idea of faith and trust and baptism. That's the core. And a lot of these other things will be narrowly tailored to what it is that you need to learn in this life and the next. Awesome. That's all I have, Derek. Do you have anything else for... Yeah, that's all I have, too. Let's go ahead and wrap things up before we go ahead and go to our housekeeping items. I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes, lyceum.fm, L-Y-C-E-U-M.fm, or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us online at beyondtheblockpodcast.com and also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Dope. Also, events that we have coming up, Derek. So, we're going to be speaking at the Colorado Faith Forums this coming Friday. Do you have the information about this? I do. Colorado Faith Forum, that'll be September 18th at 7 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. The Zoom link, however, has not been released yet. However, you can go to the Facebook page to receive some updates about that. But again, like Derek said, that will be this Friday. Yeah, this Friday. Derek, do you want to tell the people what you're talking about? Yeah, so the title of my presentation will be The Book of Abraham as Revelatory Drag, colon, because, you know, every uh, academic thing has to have a colon. (laughs) The Book of Abraham as Revelatory Drag, Putting the Trans Back in Translation. Good job. Good job. I don't remember the title of my, my remarks, but I'm going to be say, saying stuff too. And I'm speaking before Derek because, you know, I'm trying to go after him. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, there's that affirmation conference. Yes. The affirmation conference actually started September 12th, but there will be more things going on over the next few weekends. So, check those out. I want to thank you guys who have contributed to our Glow page to help us uh, to sustain the work of the show and also improve it in various ways to further the mission of Beyond the Block, to make Mormonism accessible to everyone. We launched this Glow page where if you're willing and able, you can throw some coins our way in the form of a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution. And if you contribute anything, you get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including access to our collaborator Facebook group where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback and ideas for the show including guests we can have on our bonus episodes we just finished one today because a collaborator suggested suggested this person to us and uh, you can also access our notes and do a lot more but anyway if you got not coins to throw at us just share our glow page on your uh, on your socials and you can still join our collaborator community because We don't want money to be the reason you can't join us. We want everybody who has any kind of investment in what we do here at Beyond the Block to have a way in. So that avenue is available to you as well. 
Um, also, finally, want to send a thank you to some of our closest collaborators, Tamara Kemsley for editing the show, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, and of course, The Eden Wynn for handling our social medias. All y'all are rock stars. Thank you very much. Anything else I got to put out there, Derek? No, that's it. Very good. Wait, aren't you speaking somewhere soon? Yeah, I'm speaking yeah, somewhere. Yeah, you should, you should announce that. So, yeah, I'm doing a Race in the Book of Mormon study series that is put on by, I think, the uh, Young Single Adult State Stake in Washington, D.C. So if you're in the DMV area, I don't think this is necessarily restricted to people in the DMV, but uh, it was primarily created for them. It'll be a virtual event. And it's, uh, I will be speaking on September 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I don't know what I'm talking about exactly yet. I'm supposed to be centering my remarks around a single scripture in the Book of Mormon, but Lord knows I'm not doing that mess. I will mention a single scripture, but I am not sticking around that. But anyway, there's all kinds of great speakers. Brother Ahmed Corbett has already spoken of the Sunday School General Presidency. And uh, Dr. Farina King, who we've uh, interviewed within just a couple of weeks ago, I think she also spoke, uh, just this past week. So there are, there are some great speakers on the lineup. I'm really honored to be a part of it. And if you guys want to tune into that, you definitely can get at us. Cause I, I think you got to sign up for a newsletter in order to get the zoom link, but, uh, yeah, just get at us on the uh, website if you want, or the Instagram page or our Facebook page, if you want to know how to, how to do it. But yeah, that's it. If there's nothing else, thank you guys for joining us today till we meet again next week. Yeah, it was so great to see you again this week and we look forward to next week.